through it. We call it your word. Jesus was the manifestation of it. And we desire to draw closer to him this evening by understanding it even just a little more. And so, God, as we battle through the conquest of Joshua, I pray that you help us to slay our giants and to subdue every single blessing that we have in Christ Jesus this evening. That there would be none that is neglected, no promise missed out on. Father, we would know your son intimately and entirely. And Lord, that every soul in this building would be targeted to know Jesus Christ. And so we pray that every single blessing that you have given to us in the heavenly places would be ours through the faith that Joshua displays in conquest. In your precious name we pray, amen. We'll open to Joshua chapter 11 this evening. Got chapters 11 through 15 this week, and I trust you guys are reading right along, just a chapter a day. Did you know that it only takes 72 hours plus some minutes to read through the entire Bible at a comfortable pace at which I'm speaking at this moment? Just 72 hours. Did you know that the average American watches 75 days of TV a year? 75 days of TV. That's five hours a day. It'll take you about five minutes to read a chapter. So um, I know the problem isn't time. It's priority or choice or remembrance. So what I always tell high schoolers is if you have trouble remembering to read God's word, place it on your pillow or in the refrigerator or by the coffee maker it's hard to miss when you lay your head upon your Bible on the pillow. What's that? Oh, I'm going to sleep. It's, it's just hard to miss. Or when it's by the coffee maker, there are ways to do it. You can do it. So um, we have chapters 16 through 20 this upcoming week. Just chapter a day. Do it. Do it. I can even make high schoolers do it. So I know you guys can do it. Well, um, Joshua chapter 11. We are going through this book. It's a wonderful book because it... What it does is it culminates the law. We have studied for the last several months Genesis through Deuteronomy, which, which formulates the law to the Jews. God gave them his law to them. He said, do these laws, you'll be blessed. Don't do these laws, and you'll be sorry. And in Joshua, we find that illustrated. We find that if Israel obeys the law of God, they succeed and they're victorious. On the other hand, if they fail to obey that law, we find failure and defeat, as we observed several weeks ago at the Battle of Ai in Joshua chapter 7. They did not listen to the Lord as they made, um, well, they... You guys might recall they sent only 3,000 people to the city of Ai, and they thought, we can handle this on our own. And there was sin in the camp, however. Dun, dun, dun. Always a problem. And when they hit the city, they were defeated because they did not keep God's law. But every time Joshua leads the people to faithfully keep the law and to go into the land by faith, trusting upon Yahweh completely and entirely, they are invincible. In fact, we only find 36 casualties on Israel's side in the entire book of Joshua, and that was at the defeat of Ai. Just 36 because of their disobedience. And so if you take something from Joshua, know that this is illustrating the Pentateuch's main thesis, main point, which was this. You will be blessed through obedience. You will be cursed through disobedience. And Joshua shows us that in a storybook form, in an epic story of conquest and defeat and, well, blood and guts and gore and all of that stuff. Um, by the way, as we come to chapter 11, what we have here is Joshua's final stage in the conquest. The conquest of the promised land of Canaan came in three stages. And it was a very logical way of doing this. You guys have heard the phrase divide and conquer. That's exactly what Joshua did. 
He crossed the Jordan River right at Jericho. Sent in the cent- if you look at your Bible maps, you'll see it's in the central part of Palestine. And so he goes right into the middle and creates a bridgehead, a home base, right there at Gilgal after he defeats Jericho. So he's in the heart of the land, right in the middle. And then he swings south towards Judea. And he conquers the southern region in campaign number two. And no sooner than they're just finished, the king of Jabin, or King Jabin of Hazar hears about it, and he assembles an army up in the north by Galilee. And so Joshua swings up north for the third and final campaign. And as we'll see through that victory, the entire land has been subdued by the Israelites, and the rest is to be given to the tribes to possess their little individual pockets to um, obliterate all the rest of the opposition. So um, we tonight conquer the entire land. It's Israel's after, oh, it always has been, but they, they receive it tonight through their final campaign. Now, what the land was to Israel, and this is important, don't miss this, if you want this book to be real to your Christian life today, what the land, the promised land Canaan was to Israel, Jesus Christ is to the Christian and the church today. All right, let me say that again. What the land was to Israel is what Jesus Christ is to the church today. It's Ephesians 1 verse 3 that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul there in that great epistle of Ephesians says right off the bat, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, and it has been given to you. What did God tell the Israelites through the wilderness as they're going to the promised land? The land has been given to you, Israel. It's up to you to take possession of it through faith, to conquer it, to subdue it, to have it. We just had Christmas. You guys know you were presented with gifts. It was yours, and they said it's yours, but what if you just walked away from it? You have to take it and receive it. You have to open it. You have to possess it. And so, as the land was to Israel, Jesus is to the church. He says, go possess it. And Jesus, in him, Ephesians says, every spiritual blessing has been given. But many of us don't even know any of these blessings or these promises. We have not a clue. We maybe have two or three possessed because we are not going in by faith into Jesus Christ. And possessing him. As our inheritance, as Ephesians later goes on to say, in him we have an inheritance in Jesus, our inheritance. So these blessings, Brandon, how do we acquire these? As the Israelites did by faith, we too by faith. Matthew 9, verse 29 There are some blind men following Jesus around. Son of David, have mercy on us. Heal us. And they're groping about, hearing where he's going. And finally, Jesus enters into a house. They come up to the threshold of the house, and they're calling to him. Have mercy on us. Heal us. And Jesus looks at them. He touches their eyes, and he says, according to your faith, according to your faith, be it done to you. There it was. Do you want to be blessed, old blind man? Do you want your eyes opened? Of course we do. We believe you can do this. According to your faith, it will be done to you. And I wonder, what if those blind men only had a little bit of faith, enough that Jesus would heal them, but just, eh, I, I really just, you know, whatever, do your thing. And I mean, would they have just maybe one eye been healed? Maybe they would have had like 2060 or 2080 vision. They could see men as trees, but not quite make them out. I don't know. You see, according to your faith, when God says that he wants to fulfill your life with joy, that's a promise, and that is your inheritance and possession. But if we walk without believing, obtaining that by faith, you will never have that joy. It's easy to walk around by sight and to say, oh, well, I don't see circumstances working out, and I don't feel any joy in my heart you've instantly allowed yourself to be conquered and defeated. 
It is by faith the land was conquered, and by faith we too receive and possess and enjoy and are blessed in our inheritance. And so, as you read Joshua, you have to see that. You have to see that this is about faith conquering and receiving everything Jesus has for us. And Joshua is on the threshold. He's on the eve of accomplishing this mission as a whole. So let's get into it without any further delay. In verse 1 of Joshua 11, before actually, must be noted, if you look at the previous verses there, it says, look at verse um, 43 of Joshua 10. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So they just finished the southern campaign. They're up at Gilgal in the middle, just enjoying, resting. They had just marched 26 miles. Um, um, it was 15 miles up to Gibeon where they had to fight the southern campaign, and then 11 miles routing the enemy. It was a tiring campaign, 26 miles, all just no stopping. And now they're resting at Gilgal and instantly, in verse 1 of chapter 11, when Jabin, king of Hazar, heard of this, their successes, he sent to Jobab, his neighbor, king of Madon, and the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, to the kings who were in the northern hill country and in the Arabah, south of Shinaroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphathdor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And Joshua and his armies trembled. <laughs> A host like the sand of the sea, this Jabin, called up every neighbor in the region of Galilee that had not even been harassed or conquered by Israel yet and said, if you have anyone that can hold a sword, bring them now because this is extinction or survival. We must put up the last stand now. And finally, Canaanites put on this unified effort, unified effort to stop God's people. It's so interesting how God has a way of uniting people. We look around in this room and we see definite unity. It's this chorus to God's ears it must be as we fellowship and talk before and after study. And amongst, you know, during our week and stuff. We have unity in the body of Christ. But we also have unity outside the body of Christ when it comes to coming against God's people. And you look at the Gospels, and you have the Pharisees, who are much like the Republicans of today, and you have the Sadducees, who are much like the Democrats of our day. That's why they were sad, you see. And, no, I'm just kidding. Um, and they, Sunday school joke, come on, you guys all know that one, right? And they, um, come on, Republicans, Democrats, don't get together for anything anything. I mean, you guys are reading the newspapers lately and hearing the news. It's ridiculous what's going on. However, when it came to Jesus and opposing him, you frequently found Pharisees and Sadducees uniting in a joint effort to come against him. In Psalm 2, the psalmist David is wondering, why do the heathen rage he talks about how they come together. They join themselves as a unit to break his bands and his cords from off them to come against him and his holy anointed one. When it comes to God and his people and his work, the enemy will do anything. They will, they will unite together to come against that. And does this not sound like it's starting to foreshadow the end of the Bible when we have a coalition of nations 
of peoples, of speeches, of different religious beliefs, all coming together to worship a man and to replace God. However, Psalm 2, after it says, Oh Lord, the nations are all joining together to come against us and to come against you. What do we do? The psalmist then relaxes and says, Ah, but God sits in the heavens and he laughs. <laughs> I wonder what he laughs about. Probably thinking about the raid he's about to bring out on the little ants trying to fight against him or something. Or the shoe that's going to smash him. But guys, I mean, that's what it is like. Man thinks that... He, that through unity, they can actually accomplish something, that the more we're unified, the more we can do. And though that's true, when it comes against God, it, it, does it stop? Does one man stop God or a million men stop God? Does it matter to him? When he breathes out stars, when he, when he created that unit, do you think that he can say, oh, no, there's one too many guys against me. We're outnumbered angels. What do we do? And just like in Revelation, when they come, by the way, the waters of uh, Merom are in, near the Valley of Megiddo, which is where Revelation talks about um, Armageddon taking place. So we have literally a foreshadowing, Jabin, the little head ruler, getting everyone together to come against God's people. <laughs> Jabin, I'm sorry, but according to Revelation, you're not going to live. And that's exactly what God does. He comes down on his white horse the horse of victory, and he, they have no chance. The, the world, even though they unify, they think that because every university is going to start teaching uh, secular material and anti-God stuff, that we're going to succeed, and actually because we all think this way, if we brainwash ourselves, that we're actually going to get rid of God from our society? Does ignorance get rid of something? But, but that's the world's mindset, is that if we come together, we can actually obliterate <laughs> It is so crazy that people think this way. And so Jabin gets his sand together, his host is sand, the, the size of the sand of the sea, and they come against Israel. And in verse 6, Joshua is told by the Lord, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel you shall hamstring their horses, which basically is you just cut their back legs, back legs so they can't run. Hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mizparoth Maim, and the eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah, and they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them as the Lord said to them. He hamstrung their horses, burned their chariots with fire. So amazing how brief that account is. This mighty host, this like the sands of the sea, and they have chariots and horses. Israel didn't. You know, these are like modern tanks. Sherman tanks coming up against the Israelites. Technology, advanced warfare. Jo uh, um, Joshua is shaking in his boots. He just has no idea how this is going to happen. But God says, don't worry. Just don't worry about it. And so what happens is Joshua immediately is encouraged, and he makes a five-day trek up to the waters of Merom. His armies just march, possibly camped out right at Galilee and then right around the waters of Merom, which if it was a spring or such, the, the um, Canaanites were probably strewn about in the gorge, camping out by the waters, and likely they were trying to come down to the Israelites, and they were simply assembling, because at the waters of Merom, you find all the roads from the surrounding cities meet up right there. So they're just simply assembling themselves. The horses are unharnessed from the chariots. Maybe even they're, they're watering them. And you don't keep horses harnessed, especially amongst a large army. You have to keep everything comfortable and cushy. And so here they are just expecting to come down the next few days and take out Israel. But suddenly, it's about 2 a.m. in the evening. Joshua unsheathes his sword and his men run with him. See, they're experts at surprise sudden attacks they were special ops they had the right moves they knew that you had to have 
your plan set and to come in suddenly and instantly without hesitation and they did so and they did it by surprise at night they came suddenly and I would suggest I would guess that the chariots and the horses were on the outside of the camp and the people on the inside sort of creating a barrier if you will and keeping the smell and the inconvenience out of the way of the people and if I'm Joshua I silently take out the guards and I light the chariots with fire so that what you create is from the view of the people in the camp as the armies are suddenly coming at you you can't see them they're silhouetted on the background of the fire of the chariots and while the fire is giving the Israelites light as they see them with the glow these people are here in the dark seeing silhouettes coming they don't know where from they're wiping the sleep out of their eyes groping for their swords and their equipment and it's just a sudden massacre instantly and jo uh, um, Joshua has them routed and Israel just takes care of it and it, I just Joshua is the man but guys suddenly 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 Joshua hit them because hesitation is devastation and we cannot afford when the then the enemy assembles to come against you Christian to try to tempt you or to seduce you, to try to lure you into something of the world. You cannot afford to sit around and welcome him to come. You have to go suddenly. We must be on the offensive, not just okay with, oh, hmm, nothing's happening right now. I know there might be some sin on that TV show, but nothing's happened yet. I'm not affected. Just wait around. And we kind of wait until all of a sudden the enemy confronts us. And then we think, oh, my, grab my sword, help. I need, you know, surprise attack. But Joshua was suddenly, he knew that if he hesitated, they were devastated. And they had to go instantly and to penetrate the forces before there was even a battle. Cut off your sin tonight. Why do you just let it linger around and think that you're going to have some defensive battle against it? Take the initiative, draw the sword, and take it suddenly. Move in on it and say, Lord, no more. Lord, no more. It stops here. And when the Holy Spirit puts on your heart to pray, why do we so often say, right, at a commercial break or yeah tonight of course when I normally pray Lord why not if it's on your heart right now why not move suddenly or, or if there's a Bible passage on your heart and that you feel the Lord just say go read my word for a minute why do we say okay I'll get to that why don't we just go grab the word and do it right then and there when the Lord puts someone on our heart, someone we just randomly think about, we haven't thought about them for years, like, that's weird. Why don't we just suddenly pray for them and, and start to be sensitive to the Spirit, not just what He wants us to do, but the timing of what He wants us to do, that we would, like Joshua, have sword ready and be able to attack suddenly, to be able to move in. No more of this just vegging and just sitting around and, yeah, whenever something happens. God wants us to be on the offensive to be looking for these opportunities. And Joshua did not wait around. He took them. And so in verse 10, Joshua turned back at that time and he captured Hazor. So he went back to the main city and he, he struck its king with the sword. He was probably hiding out like a coward. And Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. In verse 11, they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was not one left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and, their, and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And if you go look at Hazor today, which is an um, archaeological dig, there's actually a layer dating around to this area, 1400 B.C., of a burn layer that fits right around the time of Joshua. Um, and then in verse 14, all the spoil of the cities and the livestock, the people of Israel took for the plunder, but every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Now, we've been seeing this through Joshua. 
complete destruction. Leave nothing that breathes, God says. Annihilate every single one of them. He didn't just say take the city and just gain possession. This was absolute wipe the slate clean. This isn't the flood with water. It's the flood with blood, if you would. God is wiping clean the slate of Canaan. And this is hard. This is hard for some of us to accept that God would command, not just permit, but command his people to slaughter thousands of heathen. It's so hard to reckon. We look at the gore of Joshua, and then we wonder and scratch our heads at the gospel of John. <laughs> we see the blood in Joshua, and then we see the blessedness of our loving Savior in John. And we, how, how, did, how is this the same God? What's going on? Well, know first in Malachi 3.6 that God says, I do not change. I do not change. And Hebrew says he's the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. So then how do we take the gore of Joshua with the gospel of John and somehow come to a, a suitable theology? This is so complex and perplexing that people like um, Richard Dawkins, if you don't know, he's pretty much the leader of the New Atheist Movement. He wrote the book, The God Delusion. And in that book, he criticizes the book of Joshua mercilessly because God commanded the death of so many people. He calls it the divine genocide. The divine genocide. And we must, we must understand, how do we look at this, that God commands so much death and say, oh yeah, that's okay with us. <laughs> this is the God that we worship, the God of love, the Christian God, the God who is wanting to save all mankind. The one that said, peace to the world, as the son is born. Joy to the world. And then we see the Canaanites. Joy to the world. Joshua's sword has come. <laughs> it is so perplexing. This is what must be understood before we just look at this and judge God. Go to your left to Leviticus 18. Leviticus chapter 18. In Leviticus 18, God is telling Israel to completely annihilate the Canaanites, and he's giving them, well, he's actually not saying that here. He says it throughout the Pentateuch, but here he's giving us the reason for completely annihilating the Canaanites. And if you look at verse 6, it says, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am Yahweh. It's a very logical Law. I don't think any of us even think about uncovering the nakedness of one of our relatives. That's incest. We shudder at the thought of it. Verses 6 all the way down through 18, God is talking about incest. That's a lot of verses, a lot of scenarios that he says, don't do this. Don't have incest. Duh, God, why would you say that? And it says, it is depravity. Then look at verse 19. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And if you shall, or and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and make, and so make yourself unclean with her. That's adultery. Verse 21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. That was child sacrifice, that God Molech. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. I would say so. Why, why in the world is God telling his people not to do these things? Verse 24 tells us, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations that I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished, punished its iniquity. 
and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land, if you're doing these things, the land will vomit you out and you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Israel, don't have incest. Don't have homosexual relations. Don't sacrifice your children. Don't commit bestiality or adultery. Why? Because the Canaanites do this. And that's why you're ripping them out, ripping them apart. Cut every head off. Get rid of it. You can't let any of this last because if you do, God warned through the Pentateuch, you will do the same. It's going to be a snare to you. You must cut it out completely and entirely. Can't even let any of it last. There was a man, Aesop tells the fable of a man who had a flea buzzing around his head and it bit his head, bit him again. And he's getting really irritated. So he swats at it and he grabs the flea in between two of his fingers and he says, and the flea starts to whimper, please don't kill me, I'm just a little guy, I mean, no harm. And he looks at the thing, why shouldn't I destroy you? I'm so little. And he, says, and he actually says, anything that's bad must be destroyed no matter how little it is. And he destroys the flea. I, I mean, that's silly, it's a, it's a little flea. But we, we so often compromise and we okay we have peace treaties with just the little flea. Oh, yeah, that's okay. We'll get, take care of the big stuff, get most of it, but the little fleas will scatter around. God's to take care of all of it because the Canaanites are committing practices that is much like cancer. When a man has, or a woman has cancer, the cells mutate and they begin to destroy the body. And to get rid of it, you have to get rid of each and every single cell. And if any cell is left... That's enough to start it all over again. It must be completely erased and annihilated lest the cancer come back. And God says, look at the Canaanites. Look at these practices. They are a cancer to humanity. And they're a cancer to my plan to bring Jesus to save the world. Because if Israel, if you become like them, how is the Messiah going to come through you? If Mary was having relationships with a goat, I'm, there's no virgin birth. I'm not sure if you really lose your virginity with that. I, it's just, I don't even like thinking about that. It's just, you see the purpose though. It's a cancer. It's destroying mankind. It started in the garden with one little disobedience, and then it started with Cain killing Abel, and then Lamech, one of the descendants of Cain, killed someone. And instead of saying, oh no, I killed someone, I'm going to hide his body or something, he started to say, oh, so what, I killed him. I'm going to brag about it. So what, I killed him. And I'm going to take more wives from myself. And you see, sin just populate and explode until in Genesis 6, God says that man's only thought was evil all the time. And so what do you do? You wiped it clean. He has to preserve humanity from destroying himself with sin. And here is his cancer in Canaan. It's time to wipe it clean. Get rid of it. Israel, cut it out. So, this isn't divine genocide. This is capital punishment. The land is Yahweh's. He's the one giving it to whomever he pleases. And we are simply, or the people there, are his tenants. And if you have someone burning down your apartment building, you kick, you kick them out. You don't let them stay. And God said, listen, you're an abomination. It's depravity. This incense, this bestiality, this adultery, this child sacrifice, it must be cut out. So he vomits them out. And you know that it's fair and that it's capital punishment and not divine genocide because God did the exact same thing to the Israelites when they committed the same practices. He wasn't partial. When they did it, he sent them to Babylon. And the northern kingdom had it worse. They've been dispersed ever since. We don't even know where those guys are. This is capital punishment. How bad was it? Part of the worship was to have prostitutes. That was their job. They were priestess and priests of Ashtoreth or Baal or whichever you're going to go. And it was their job to have sexual relations with the worshipers. Why? Well, because it was believed that if you were having sex with a priestess or the priest, 
the closest person to that God or goddess possible that you were actually communing and having that intimacy with the God. What in the world? Why would you want to have sex with a God? Well, because to have pagan mindsets, they believed that their family's fertility, the farm's fertility, and the flock's fertility were all intricately combined in their mythology. And that the fertility and their, really their sustenance for life depended upon the gods bringing this fertility through the gods' sexual relations with one another. And in order to ensure that these things happened, that there would be fertility in their crops and their farm or their animals and their family, to ensure that it happened, they practiced manipulation. They believed that through their acts of reenacting their mythologies, the gods were liable and responsible to do what they were doing on their behalf. It's manipulation. It's voodoo. It's, it's all that stuff. They're trying to manipulate the gods to bring fertility. And so they would recreate their myths, their pagan mythology, by doing these abominable acts and thus believe that the gods were going to honor them by giving them fertility. Disgusting, disgusting worship. And so that's like the adultery part of it. Then you have the child sacrifice to Moloch. And I want to read you this excerpt. Um, Moloch, by the way, had blazing hot arms and his belly was open. There's a fire blazing there. You put the child on there so he just burns to death and eventually he rolls into the furnace. They did it anywhere from four years old or under. It was considered, because your firstborn especially was your prized possession, it was the most honorable gift you can give to Molech the god. And one excerpt I found says that, um, as, the flaming, as the flame burning the child surrounded the body, while well, he's on the arms, the limbs would shrivel up and the mouth would appear to grin as if laughing until it was shrunk enough to slip into the cauldron. And we think, oh yeah, God was just cruel. Let's let these people live. No worries. Israel, just mingle with them. <laughs> homosexuality, no ancient Near East document condemns homosexuality. Not one. We, we find all these laws all the time in, in um, archaeology and not one do we find that condemned anywhere. Um, it goes on with bestiality, which is, of course, probably the most depraved form of sexuality. Um, we found one Hittite law that said this, if anyone has intercourse with a pig or a dog, he shall die. Good. If a man has intercourse with a horse or a mule, however, there is no punishment. How in the world? When, when the, the people we found in the um, Egyptian dream books, we, like I'm an archaeologist, they found in the Egyptian dream books that um, if, if a woman dreamed of being embraced by her husband, it was a bad omen. But if she dreamed of being embraced by a bamboo or a goat or a donkey, it was a good omen. It, are you serious? How corrupt are these people? And um, from the... Canaanite epic poem, the Baal cycle, which is just the story of Baal's death and resurrection. And it's very interesting how they, Satan has so carefully tried to um, imitate the gospel beforehand. This is a line that we see what Baal does. This is where they get bestiality. Their gods whom they worship and glorify do these things. It says, mightiest Baal hears. He makes love with a heifer in the outback, a cow in the field of death's realm. He lies with her 70 times 7, mounts 80 times 8. She conceives and bears a boy. This is the type of culture Israel was going into. This is why God was so severe saying, annihilate them. This is a cancer and it cannot, it cannot be allowed. Israel, don't even just punish them. Just don't even have a remembrance of them. It makes me wonder how much we let go, how much we fail to actually subdue sin. We, we say, oh, it's not going to touch me, but it's okay to be in the house. Or I, I don't really approve of it, but I love this musician. I, I have to listen to him. His music and beats are awesome. I don't really mind the lyrics. I'm not really listening to him anyways. It just makes me wonder. You know, not, not, not stating any laws from God or anything, but between you and the Holy Spirit, what, what have we allowed to keep breathing that is so cancerous to us? God just wants us to 
Lop its head off. Just finish it. Don't let it go on. We rob ourselves of the blessings of Jesus Christ because we let these things live. Well, moving on, um, I promise not every chapter will be this long. It's just some of these chapters don't talk about a lot. So I'm, some of you guys like, look like, oh my gosh, we're only through a few verses. <laughs> So um, the, it then goes into verse 16. We're back in Joshua 11. Verse 16, it talks about, it's kind of summarizing what Joshua has done. Because the land has been conquered now. Not everyone is dead. Don't get me wrong. There are still cities and all that jazz. But Israel has established such strong control that they can now just distribute their tribes. And it's now up to each and every individual tribe to completely annihilate. Jesus took care of sin for us on the cross. And the land, if you will, is conquered for us, but it's up to us individually, like each individual tribe, to annihilate the rest. Will we fulfill it? Well, in uh, verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. How long? How long was this campaign? It took us six chapters to read about all these campaigns. How long did it really take? Seven years. We find that in Caleb's testimony. If you want to do the math, it's in chapter 14. He talks about it. But seven years. Seven years. It took us six chapters, maybe 30 minutes to read, two weeks to study. It took them seven years. I mean, see, we, we look at this and think, oh, yeah, it's so easy. How come that doesn't happen in my life? I guess I just don't get it. I'm just going to kind of be complacent. Now, what we don't see is that this took a long time of brutal, bloody warfare and having to man up every day to look at the corpse or to go bury some more bodies or to go slay some more people for seven years. You had to do this. You had to go through with it. And I say this because some of us give up too quick. We think that sin is an instant fix and that all we have to do is say, oh, it's gone. Are you kidding me? Our flesh is so strong. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak to help us combat sin. It takes time. That's why God, in um, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 22, told the people that um, the Lord your God will clear away all these nations before you little by little. You may not take, you may not make an end of them all at once, or else the wild beasts will grow and become too numerous for you. Very logical. If you only have 10 people conquer the entire United States, the animals think no man exists. <laughs> It had to be little by little, so they grow into the land, and this is what God does with us. Sometimes, as hard as we try, sin is going to die slowly because he knows. He can't just wipe everything necessarily instantly because sometimes what happens, and it can happen, don't get me wrong, but what, can, what often happens is if God did just wipe away all of those idols of our hearts in an instant, and um, all of a sudden just... So we sit here and go, what do I do? All of my loves and passions are gone, and we turn back to those things again because we don't want to it to do. What, they, what God said is, little by little, take the land and grow into it because when you have sin conquered, you have to grow into it. What do you mean, Brandon? You can't just take sin out of your life and expect yourself never to sin again unless you replace that sin you replace what has been conquered. You let yourself grow with the presence of Jesus Christ. See, the Bible doesn't say just lop sin off and then suffer through life without fun or try to make do with it. It says lop it off and cleave to Jesus. Leave your sin and cleave to him. Forsake it and follow him. Just draw near. Let him replace that with his love and intimacy. That's why sometimes for us it happens little by little because we have to learn with each step to grow with Jesus. And so I encourage you, if it seems like it's been a long battle, keep pulling the sword out of the sheath and going forward because God will bring you fulfillment. Just keep going, keep going, and let yourself grow. Don't just have the mentality, I have to stop getting drunk. I don't know what I'm going to do on Friday nights now. Jeez. No, stop getting drunk and pick up the Bible or go to a Bible study. Start worshiping Jesus in its place, and you'll find that there's going to be no longing to go back to it. Jesus fulfills. He fulfills. He's the bread of life, the living water. And so, verse 23, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord has spoken to Moses. There it is, is conquered. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. So now it's up to each individual to completely subdue the land. 
What is the land? From the Nile River to the Euphrates River. If you guys know your maps in your head, that's large. From, um, where is the Euphrates? Is that like modern Iran, Iraq, one of those? Wait, Iraq? It's way up there and all the way down to Egypt. That's, that, that's what God had in mind for them. Under King Solomon, the height of their empire, they had 10% of that conquered. Again, the protagonist of this book is faith, conquering. The antagonist is complacency, settling for less than God has for us. We'll see that in chapter 13. So in chapter 12, what this is is a list, first of the kings that Moses conquered. There's two, Og and uh, Sihon, and we've read about those. And then verse 7 These are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan. So now here's a list of 31 kings that Joshua commanded. Lists them each, one by one. But this is intriguing. If you will, just read a couple verses with me. You'll see what I mean. Um, Look at verse 9. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. What in the world? When I count things, I say one. The king of Lachish, two. The king of Jericho, three. The king of Ai, four. A little more logical. You know exactly what it's building up to. No, Joshua, one. 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 Did we conquer any yesterday? I don't know. One more. (laughs) One. One. And it's not until the end of the passage, at the very end it says, in all 31 kings. And I, oh, okay, good. I don't have to go back and count. Thank you, Joshua. <laughs> but not until the end did he realize it's 31. Why in the world would Joshua just say one, one, instead of one, two, three, four? I would suggest it's because we need to be like Joshua in this area. Not counting up each and every victory, something that we do in the Lord, one, two, three. Ooh, look what I'm accumulating. Look how good I'm doing. Adding numbers up and looking at our success and stockpiling numbers. And I'm up to 30 now. Woo, I'm so good. Not Joshua. Joshua said one. And then the next step God had for him, one. One step at a time, one king at a time. Joshua didn't say, whoa, I'm doing so good. He just said, I'm playing for an audience of one. And it's one king at a time. No one's going to see, oh, yeah, I've got 30. How many do you have? <laughs> or listen to what I say five people last weekend. Yeah. Oh, you want to learn how to pass out tracks? You want to just learn the beginner stuff? I've talked to people like this. It's kind of embarrassing. It really is that we start to boast about our accomplishments. We start to look for our rewards now and start adding things up. Joshua was one step at a time, one king at a time. What, God said this one today. Okay, one. This one today, okay, one. Just always looking forward, not accumulating his past successes. Ooh, I'm so mighty. May we learn to be like that. But how will I ever know what I've ever done? At the end, at the end, you find out it's 31. Pilgrims, at the end of our voyage, we find out everything that we have done. You may not even know what you've done because you've been doing it all to the Lord and he has a reward for you. And you realize, oh my gosh, look what, look what happened. I had no idea. You see, we must be servants of Yahweh and not of man. Paul said in um, Galatians 1.10, Hey, if I start serving man, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. Whatever you do, whatever you eat and drink, do all unto the glory of the Lord. And then in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks. This is, this is our goal. Not trying to man-please and showing our numbers, but just one at a time. Whatever God tells me. I'm playing for an audience of one to please him. And so we continue right along into chapter 13. The inheritance, basically in chapter 13, we come to the last section of the book. They're possessing the land. They're giving out the allotments one at a time. First is the eastern tribes. We've already seen what they have. And remember, there's those two and a half tribes that did not actually cross Jordan and possess the land. They're over there content with their cattle grazing fields. But what's interesting to me is if you look at verse 8, it's very subtle, but point this out. With the other half, chapter 13, verse 8, um, with the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, 
which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan. Then when you get into chapter 15, you see the um, allotments that Joshua is going to give the people. Two and a half have inheritance in Moses, who's dead. The other nine and a half have inheritance in Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew name for the Greek name Jesus. <laughs> I like that. Because we're supposed to have our inheritance in Jesus Christ. Not in Moses. Not in the law. Yet I fear sometimes our, uh, our Christian relationship. In fact, Paul calls these people the weaker brethren. The ones that have very regimented standards and legalistic lifestyles. And they say, hmm, can't do anything. It's nothing that maybe even in the Bible. They, they add law upon law and say, this is how you have to live, brother. You're not being spiritual because you have a TV. <laughs> we would all be in trouble, I think. <laughs> but there's, these, there's this tendency in some Christians to settle with the inheritance of Moses. And you can see the death in their walk. There's no that joy of the Spirit. It is very possible to be with the people of God, fighting alongside them like these two and a half tribes did, but not actually living with them, not actually inheriting with them. It's very possible. And so um, just to briefly point that out, Jesus Christ is our rest. We don't, need the, we don't need to live a legalistic lifestyle. We live in love and following him, and it's so much more freeing when that happens. Possess your inheritance in him. I encourage you, brothers and sisters. Well, the concluding section is a good one. It's in chapter 14. By the way, the rest of chapter 13 is giving you geographical locations. Their territory went from this mountain to this river to this rock to this tree. So it's very, I mean, if, you're, um, if you love geography, grab a map and challenge yourself. But they have maps where they've done this for you. Um, but that's what chapter 13 is telling you. Chapter 14, though, this is good. We come to Judah. Judah's inheritance is in chapter 15, and as they're gathering in chapter 14, Caleb comes first before Judah, and he says, uh, just a minute, Joshua, we have a score to settle here. I want my inheritance now. And so in chapter 14, verse 6, the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, uh, like Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. You guys recall this story, do you not? The 12 spies. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. My heart, not my eyes. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, Joshua, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since that time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. He's been waiting 45 years for this promise. What a guy. And now, behold, I am this day 85, and I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim, the giants, were there with great fortified cities. It may be, it may be that the Lord will be with me. <laughs> I can hear him. It will be that the Lord will be with me. And I shall drive them out just as the Lord had said. So Joshua blessed him and he gave him Hebron to Caleb, the son of of Jephunneh for an inheritance. And this is the reason for this is in chapter verse 14, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. 85. And he's been waiting a long time for this inheritance. And he's as strong as he was back then. How does a man and a woman of God stay?
stay strong for all those years. We hit those points where we just sometimes just want to throw in the towel. We just, mm, the flesh is too strong right now. I'm just going to have to give in a little bit. But for 85 years, 45 years in waiting, this Caleb guy was strong. What is the secret to his strength? I find three basic secrets. Only we know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he lets us know. The first and foremost is that he saw through the eyes of faith. Caleb was strong because he saw through the eyes of faith. You recall when they went to go view the land, 10 of the people said, 10 of the spies said, you know, the people are big, the, the walls are to heaven, hyperbole, and we are like grasshoppers in their sight, another hyperbole. But see, though, that's, that's the life of living by sight, your eyes, not by faith, but your sight. You begin to see things all distorted in your fear. The walls are to heaven. I'm a grasshopper. And you, you just can't. You're so intimidated. There's too much fear. But Caleb was strong because he had eyes of faith. He, he was able to see not the size of the people, but the size of his God. And the minute we begin to fear man, as Proverbs 25 says, the fear of man is a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord is safe. His faith made him strong. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. For very good reason. Our sight's deceiving. Our feelings lie. They're fickle they're like the waves of the sea. But faith, faith is that anchor. It will make you strong despite what you see or feel. And Caleb had that faith. I don't care how big they are. I know my God. I'm looking up. I'm looking up always. So number one, he had the eyes of faith. Number two... He was a pilgrim. Caleb was a pilgrim. I don't mean the Mayflower and Thanksgiving and early America. I mean the type of people that don't have a home. They're waiting and traveling until they get home. Caleb knew his inheritance the minute he walked in and spied the land. And Moses said, it will be yours. And guess what Caleb did? For 45 years, he waited. He never considered the wilderness his home. He never settled anywhere. He said, I am not home yet. I am not home yet. And through his whole life, he kept in mind that he's a pilgrim and that his destiny lies elsewhere for us, Christian. It's up in the sky. It's in heaven. It's our inheritance in Christ for eternity. And as we keep that in perspective, that this world is not our home, and we don't have to feel comfortable and accepted here, but that that is our destiny, you will stay strong. That the trials here will not buffet you, but they will buff you, if you will. They will make you stronger, as First Peter says, that we have a heavenly inheritance, unfading, uncorruptible, and um, it doesn't perish. I blanked out the last word. Um, it's up there stored in heaven for you. And lift, <clears throat> if necessary, right now we go through tribulation connects the two we go through the tribulation we're able to endure because we have our eyes up there on the inheritance and so did caleb he was a pilgrim he knew something was coming so nothing could stop him because he knew things were only going to get better one day um it's in psalm 84 it's 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 a psalm about pilgrimage to jerusalem for their annual feasts and one of the verses says that they the pilgrims the pilgrims go from strength to strength each one appears before the Lord in Zion. They don't go in their pilgrimage from strength to weakness, from strength to fatigue, from strength to doing the same, but from strength to strength. The further they go, the more they look at their heavenly Zion, the stronger they get. That was Caleb. Waited 45 years. And finally, yes, his faith, yes, his pilgrimage, but who he followed, how he followed. Three times in this passage, I followed the Lord. I wholly follow the Lord my God. You will never be stronger than when you wholly follow the Lord your God. If God be for us, you can be against us. And if you haven't learned that in Joshua, that as long as they wholly follow the Lord their God, they're victorious, you need to read this book again. <laughs> Caleb understood that. And he wholly, wholly, not just, I follow him when it's good. I follow him when we're playing follow the leader. No, he wholly followed it. Lord is God. And when you wholly follow, you're wholly victorious. And so was Caleb. Secret to his strength, faith, pilgrimage, and following wholeheartedly the Lord his God. And he received the land of the giants and defeated them all. By the way, Caleb's the only guy 
who completely subdued his entire inheritance. So Christian, are we struggling with possessing our inheritance in Christ? Are we feeling weak? Have we just not gotten there yet? Caleb is our illustration. It must be done by faith. Stop, look, stop living by sight and start gaining faith by the word of God that gives us faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And start seeing yourself as a pilgrim, looking for that destiny, making your way there. And um, if you do those two things, you're naturally going to follow God with all your heart. So keep following him. You will find your Christian experience becoming so much more abundant and fruitful, inheriting Jesus Christ, exploring all of the blessings in him. And you'll wonder, you'll scratch your head at how it took you so long to drive out some of these Canaanites that have been plaguing you for so long. Let's get rid of them. The cancer is it's fatal. It must be annihilated. Father, we...